0: Hello, and welcome to The Field Guides. I'm Bill, and I'm here with Steve. Good morning, Steve. Good morning, Bill. What we're gonna do today, and over the course of many future episodes, is give you the experience of what it's like to be in the woods, in the field, and on the trail. Each month, we pick a natural history topic, research the science behind that topic, and then take you out to a natural spot and share with you everything that we've learned. And today, we are gonna be sharing what I've learned, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and maybe a little bit of what you've learned. Just a little bit, I think, yeah. (laughs) About beaver. Yeah. Castor canadensis, and we are at the <laughs> ideal spot to do that. We are at the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center, where we record
1: recorded quite a few of our episodes previously, Uh huh. but we will not be seeing beaver today. Their mascot must be a beaver, right? This place is called Beaver Meadow. You would think so. What? <laughs> it's not a beaver? It is not. What uh, the... Be- <laughs> Because Beaver Meadow is
0: managed by the Buffalo Audubon Society. Oh. So their mascot is actually a wood duck. Wow. Uh, I know, I know. Wow. it's a shame. But... They
1: got the wood part, right, <laughs> <Yeah>. but. <laughs> We're not
0: gonna see beaver today because we are here on a rainy January morning. And I looked when I was driving in and the beaver pond is frozen over. Oh, okay. So for people that have not uh, been listening for a while, we should say a little bit about the Beaver Meadow Audubon Center. We're about a uh, half an hour southeast of Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And there's about 400 acres here. As I mentioned, it's managed by the Buffalo Audubon Society. There's about a 40-acre beaver pond that is maintained, at least currently as far as I know, by a beaver colony. And the, the pond is frozen, so we are not going to see the beaver, but the beaver are
1: hibernating. Right, Steve? Yeah, they hibernate. <laughs> they're one of the true hibernate. No, they're not. No. <laughs> All right. just
0: want to make sure. I didn't know if you
1: knew. <laughs> I didn't know. I mean, I did know. <laughs> you did yeah, know, right? I did know.
0: Yeah. So beavers do not hibernate, and we are going to get into that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I wanted to start off by talking about my first beaver encounter. Hmm, okay. So when I was in college, this is probably when I was around 20, my friend Herb, who I think we've mentioned on yeah, the we've, podcast we've talked before. About Herb. he was kind of my mentor, he took me on my first real camping trip up into hmm. the Adirondack Mountains in New York. So this was around in the mid Mm nineties. So this was before the internet when you could, you know, just very quickly check trail conditions. Yeah. So we went up in April and we were going to go kayaking through an area called the Bog River Flow. Okay. Uh, If any of you are looking for a great place to do some flat water paddling in the Adirondacks can't, uh, can't, Recommend that place enough, 14 miles of flat water. We've been there. We,
1: yeah, I was gonna say, we've done the Bog, Bog yeah. River as well. Yeah, yeah, it's a beautiful
0: place to go mm-hmm. paddling, uh, especially with little kids, because it's easy paddling, one short carry. Oh, it's is great. that what you brought me?
1: <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Uh-huh. <laughs> little kids and Steve. <laughs> yeah. So
0: we drove up there, and the access road to get into the put-in is probably about a quarter mile long. Mm-hmm. Well, we got up there, and there was still snow up there in April, up in the mountains, and the road was closed, hmm. and it was snow covered. So I'm thinking, oh, we're going to have to turn around and go home. But Herb being Herb, he's like, no, no, no. So we took the kayaks down, strapped the kayaks to ourselves, and dragged them <laughs> down the access road for yeah. you know at least a quarter mile till we got to the put-in. Nothing was stopping you guys. Yeah. <laughs> so the water was open at that point, so we paddled in. But... We paddled in maybe about a mile or so, and there was a massive beaver dam. <laughs> now, in my head, this was over 20 years ago. In my head, this thing was, you know, 100 yards wide. <laughs> right. In reality, who knows how big it was? 30 feet, <laughs> <Right>. 10 yards. <laughs> yeah. But we had to pull our kayaks over it, and as we're pulling kayaks over it, A beaver slaps its tail nearby. Oh. And I had never, at this point, seen beaver before. It had not been in
1: my experience. And the beaver slap, it's it's, loud. Yeah, it's loud, and it creates a pretty big splash, too. Yeah. So at first, I'm thinking gunshot. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And he's not kidding. Herb gets over laughing. He explains what's going on. But as we're pulling our, I'm just imagining just a gunman up on a ridge somewhere shooting down at you guys. I didn't know. (laughs) This is
0: my first camping trip. (laughs) Okay. So we're pulling our boats across the uh, the beaver dam, and the beaver gets out of the water onto the dam and starts advancing on us. Whoa! (laughs) Okay. And I look to Herb, thinking, "Well, you know, what's the beaver gonna do?" And Herb's looking at the beaver, and I can see in his eyes wondering huh (laughs) i wonder if if we're in danger right now so we quickly got into our boat i'm
1: waiting for you to pull up your shirt and there's like just beaver teeth mark scar that you have that's the (laughs) story it went straight for the kidneys but no we did
0: go in get into our kayaks quickly paddled out the the beaver did go into the water and followed us for a little while there's
1: nothing like being mauled by an herbivore right No. Funny, you should say that okay because I, mean, I, I know it happens yeah we
0: will get into beaver attacks during this episode oh cool <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> nice so that is coming but that was my first experience with a beaver wow. and i was impressed i still do remember clearly being impressed with how big a beaver
1: is mm-hmm. so oh I, I think it's uh it's the second largest whoa. mammal right very good yeah because the capybara that's right yeah yeah, yeah. capybara is bigger
0: So our North American beaver, it's the second largest rodent in the world. Hmm. Followed by the capybara. Capybara, that's right. Which, where are those again? They're in South America. South America. South America. America. Well, that's where they're native to. Got it, got it. (laughs) So there are other places at this point. (laughs) Yeah. So our North American beaver, they do weigh between 30 and 70 pounds, with the record being 110 pounds. They're about three to four feet long. That includes their tail.
1: Hold on a second. Second largest... Wait, rodent. Ha- rodent. 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 Yes. I didn't mean mammal. Is that because what we said? <laughs> I, I think I may have said mammal by mistake, but I'm sure a lot of the listeners are like, wait a second. And <laughs> there's grizzly bears. There's, you know, yeah. Rodent. I'm glad you rodent. caught yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes,
0: so they are indeed a rodent. Yeah. But they are about three to four feet long, including the tail. So, I mean, picture a yardstick. Yeah, you know, that's They can big. be even longer than that. Mm-hmm. The tail is usually about eight to fourteen inches long, and the width can be six inches or less. <laughs> and... In my my reading, I did see them referred to as ecological and hydrological Swiss Army knives, which I thought (laughs) was a great way to refer to them. Okay, Swiss Army knives, all right. And that tail, it has multiple uses, like a Swiss Army knife. I think most people, know that they use it as a rudder for swimming.
1: Mm. I didn't realize. Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so yeah, I guess it makes sense if they just, you know, turn it a little and bit. And they even use it for propulsion. Yeah. I, I say c- it makes sense, but <laughs> you know, it de- it depends on the biology, but I can imagine it. So anytime I say, "Oh, that makes sense," I can just suddenly imagine it, you know, whether or not it's true. So <laughs> you could be easily dissuaded for it. Sure, sure. That. Yeah. And then they also use it
0: as a balance prop when they're working mm-hmm. on land, so almost like a little kickstand. Okay. And then as we've been talking about to slap on the water. Now, why do they slap their tail on the water?
1: I imagine it's to uh, freak people out or get things to move away from their their home. So that's that would what, be my guess. That
0: know. was always my initial gut reaction. They're trying to scare whatever. Don't it tell is. me it's
1: to attract a mate. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Look what this thing can do. T- <laughs> as,
0: as far as we know, no. But it's to warn other beaver in the colony of danger. Oh, okay. Yeah, and that makes sense. And probably it is meant to scare predators or any potential danger away. Yeah. But it seems that the main reason is to signal to other beaver because there's definitely behavioral changes of other beaver in the vicinity. <laughs> when they hear that tail slap,
1: yeah. they're on alert. <laughs> beaver and maybe muskrat. Just to, <laughs> now, yeah. Do they help each other out? I wonder. I don't know. Beaver and muskrat?
0: Yeah. Oh, we're going to talk about it a little okay, bit of okay. relationship there. So one of the reasons that I chose beaver as the topic for this episode Mm -hmm. is as you know i always like to take things that i have taught people about for years that i always thought were true or i learned from somebody else and and say you know is that really true Mm -hmm. and i I think you're aware about the role i play here at beaver meadow of the beaver oh francois the (laughs) french right right we talked about this a little bit last episode the black walnut episode yeah yeah yes we did so they have a nighttime event here where they have costume characters and, and I've played Francois the beaver. And one thing I've always talked about is that beavers store fat in their tails. Oh, see, I don't even remember that, to be honest. So I, I wanted to look more into that. I was <laughs> 99% sure that I had gotten that from a reliable source. Right, right. The speech that I do, I probably wrote it 15, 16 years right, ago. Right, right. So you I can't can, even trust yourself yeah, exactly. 15 years ago. Yeah. So they do indeed do that. Um, they do that to make it through the winter. So they hmm. start building up the fat supply in their tail in the fall. There Wait, was...
1: is this what you used to say or is this the truth or what we know now? I'm giving you
0: more details. In, in the past I would just say, oh, they store fat in their tails to make it through the winter. Okay, so
1: this is all relatively verified information. Yeah. This isn't, this, you were not about to say, and that was all wrong. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Okay, good. So they do store fat in their tails. They do. And uh, the one
0: study I looked at found they could increase their fat supply up to 60% in wow. cold weather. Uh, They do eat more in the fall, and then they survive off of that fat when food is less or not available Hmm. at all. One study found the highest tail fat percentage was in December and January. Okay. This led to another thing that I had been told was that people, especially pioneers and fur trappers, used to eat beaver tail. Oh, okay. Because it was a a high fat food. Right. Some references say that no, that's not true, but then I did find several references that said, no, no, you can find, but in Lewis and Clark's uh, hmm. journals. Okay. As well as many other journals of <laughs> trappers and pioneers. Interesting. And one reference said, long hard winters were filled with lean wild game meals, which led to a scarcity of fat in a trapper's diet. One of the more sought after sources of high quality backcountry fat was beaver tail. Hmm. And then I did find a recent article they talked about one of these gatherings of gourmands in you know, New York City <laughs> uh-huh. where beaver tail was served. And this guy said, It was almost completely devoid of actual meat. The white tail fat was delicate and creamy quite rich and
1: gooey like brains oh god it's, i am sort of picturing like this is the american version of foie gras or something <laughs> right. well, yes. goose liver uh <laughs> fattened super like hyper fattened goose liver equally gross i guess yeah <laughs> i've never had it but i mean i heard it's delicious i guess i don't know though
0: <laughs> and i also did find you know beaver tails
1: are scaly i'm almost picturing like a leather or maybe i'm thinking of like crocodile yes uh, yeah yeah alligator alligator yeah it's, um, it's similar Right, and that's what I would imagine it. So, oh my God, this is so gross. The mental images that I'm getting, and I'm so sorry for the listeners, is like, so a thick leathery hide, and then the fat on the inside, and people just squeezing it out like Go-Gurt. <laughs> <laughs> which is one of the most gross. I, I, I apologize if anyone just gagged, but... we <laughs> should have had a trigger warning. <laughs> <there>. <laughs> yeah, Unfortunately, I should have done one,
0: but yeah. Equally kind of gross, depending on, on your uh, disposition, is you can buy, even on eBay, uh, beaver tail wallets oh so okay. i saw this reference know, in the it, article it, it, that's more believable than people eating the beaver, beaver tail, tail yeah. yeah they're charging anywhere from 50 to 300 bucks for, for beaver tail wallets and you can actually see the scale like pattern okay. in there so as far as longevity go beavers typically live 10 to 12 years about 20 in captivity with the oldest on record living hmm. 30 years wow now here's a question i'm sure you know the answer but I'm, I'm betting some of the listeners well
1: let's see i don't know very much know. about animals in general no, no, but no. do beavers live in dams no they do not no where do they live well from my understanding they use the dam to create a water depth in an area deep enough where they can build a lodge very good because you need a certain depth of water I mean, just, you, you imagine a puddle, they probably freeze really, really easily, right? right, yeah, right. <laughs> but if you imagine a deep body of water, uh, you're less likely to get that water to freeze. Exactly right. So I wanted to make sure I, sa- I said that because
0: many people associate beavers with dams, but they yeah. may not make that connection that, no, the right. dam is a, a solid arrangement of mud and sticks.
1: Yeah, and, and even you, during your story, didn't you say you were walking over the dam and Correct. the beaver came out? Right. So, well, there was a came lodge Came on top of it, yeah, yeah. yeah there was so.
0: a lodge nearby somewhere. So beaver are one of the few animals In the world that can modify a habitat. Yeah, they're engineers. That's right. Yeah. So I'm glad you mentioned that. Because in all the time I've been learning about wildlife, I've seen beaver referred to as ecosystem engineers Mm -hmm. or keystone species. Yeah, I've heard both. Kind of interchangeably. Yeah. So an ecosystem engineer they're species that modify their environment in a significant manner.
1: Yeah, they're the beaver corps of engineers. (laughs) (laughs) As opposed to the army corps of engineers, which is people. So yeah. So you can think of uh, animals like elephants, uh,
0: elephants by tearing down trees to get uh, at the leaves, okay. they keep grasslands as grasslands. Mm-hmm. You can think of kelp, that's an ecosystem engineer oh, they I create didn't kelp consider forests. Right? Okay, yeah. Plants can be ecosystem
1: engineers. Right, because you would imagine the ecosystem would change dramast- dramatically. <laughs> I like that dramatically. word. Dramatically. <laughs> I've said it before. Um, but uh, it's yeah. Even more intense <laughs> yeah, than dramatic. Even more, yeah. Um, dramatic. But, but I can imagine it's like as if all these trees suddenly disappeared and how that would change everything. Right, right, right. Uh, but aquatically. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but let's compare that to a keystone species. Mm-hmm.
0: So the keystone species are species that play a disproportionately large role in the prevalence and population levels of other species within their ecosystem. So yeah. there's not a lot of them, mm. but they impact other species. Very dramatically. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I got to coin that word. Everybody usually nowadays thinks of the wolves in Yellowstone, right? Okay. Yeah. Now there's some debate about how intense that impact right. is, but wolves and top predators, when they're removed or reintroduced to a system, they do cause that what we call a trophic cascade, right? Where there's alternating impacts down. Right. The the food chain.
1: Yeah, and I know that there is the because um, people may ask, oh, aren't there other predators in the in the environment? Like th- there's certain class of predators called like mesopredators and things like right. that. Middle level. Yeah, but they can't exactly fill the same niche as the top. They predators. can't at all. Yeah. So right. so you, you so that's what that's what's meant as like the the keystone. keystone. Yeah. Of the species I mean, look at is, the woods here.
0: Yeah. Like this landscape is dominated by deer. Right. Even though there are mesopredators like coyotes, raccoons, foxes. Mm. They cannot control the herbivores yeah. the way that a top predator could, like a wolf.
1: Yeah, and I think I think I remember sometimes it's just it just comes down to size. Like sometimes like the the mesopredators just aren't big enough to take down, and you know let's say an ungulate of a certain size sure. like that the the deer is just too big for them or the moose is too and big for them even if they or... could take
0: down one now and then like coyotes sometimes yeah. do they are
1: not going to take down as many right. as a top predator could yeah it. so they're not going to get the same response from the predators which when you talk about like trophic cascades and things like that you, you often talk about like prey responses to predators and, and how they move around an ecosystem and, and how they browse. And there's definitely big differences between what a top predator is capable of making them do and what a mesopredator exactly. is making them do. They fill different niches. Yeah.
0: And for anyone out there who's screaming at the, their uh, listening device about coyotes and their impact on deer, listen to our coyote episode. <laughs> we go into it in depth. So the question is, are beaver ecosystem engineers or keystone species? And really it seems like they're both yeah i
1: was gonna say why not both
0: because when you when you look at a habitat that a beaver has created there's not many beaver there Mm -hmm. there's a small population of beaver but they've had a massive impact and impacted many many other species by creating that wetland
1: yeah when i was younger um so my family I've met, I haven't mentioned it in a lot of episodes, shockingly. We own a bunch of property down in the southern what tier in New about? York. You didn't
0: mention it all the time. I
1: don't think I mentioned it recently. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, um, I used to mention it from time to time. But So on our property, we have a few different streams running through it. And one year, suddenly, we noticed that something was different. And we sort of kept exploring down into the woods even further and followed the, the creek a bit and there was a beaver dam suddenly yep. <laughs> it totally changed everything and i'm like oh this like this is horrible let's destroy the beaver dam but we never tried or we never really seriously considered it but i remember thinking i was like oh man we used to walk this area all the time and, and the beaver um ruined it. yeah and the beaver ruined it so they they clearly changed things right they changed an environment at least locally you know nope. in, a, in a certain area it very much changed the area yeah. but then you know years kept going by and we sort of Still liked enjoying going to the beaver dam that you know wasn't always there, so and arguably they increased the
0: biodiversity of that area, D-
1: yeah, it completely changed the landscape. So, yeah, yeah. and
0: your reaction mm-hmm. is not an uncommon reaction when beaver move into an area, so yeah, uh, that's one aspect of looking into the beaver that is a whole area I'm not going to get into in this episode mm. people and beaver and conflicts and, and management, yeah, yeah. because I, I feel like I just couldn't do it justice in this episode, right? Um definitely thinking the next episode, I might just do a part two because Hmm. there were so many things I just did not have time to do it justice where I said, "Ah, I'm not going to be able to talk about it in this episode. So let's get back to the dams. These are made of sticks woven with reeds, branches, saplings. They're caulked with mud. The materials are usually carried or floated, hmm. typically wood, stones, and mud, but also they found things like fence posts, hmm. crops from nearby fields, even satellite dishes and old kids' toys. Okay. Um, make up part of the <laughs> dam. Yeah. yeah, those are everywhere at this point. A lot of what I'm gonna say comes from a paper that came out in 2021. Hmm. It was in Earth Science Reviews, it was called Dam Builders and Their Works, Beaver Influences on the Structure and Function of River Corridor Hydrology Geomorphology, biogeochemistry, and ecosystems. Hmm. So this was an overview paper, kind That's of a looking long title, at, yeah. <laughs> but it covered so right. much ground into beaver and their impacts, and just did an overview of kind mm-hmm. of recent beaver research. Hmm. Uh, so this is by a researcher named Anna Gret Larson. So props to her for putting this together. It forms the backbone of a lot of this episode. Cool. She said. A beaver dam creates a peaceful, watery home for beaver families to sleep, eat, and avoid predators. And the <laughs> like e- this so far this isn't sounding like I know. A, yeah, so and, it's very nice sounding, yeah. And the effects of dam building ripple outwards with the potential to transform entire ecosystems. Wow. Now that was not in the paper. Yeah. But there's a website you may know about called mm. The Conversation, okay. where mm. researchers basically present their papers in a more digestible format. Okay. And they they will often debate <laughs> back and forth by writing articles that are in a more um, general language than <laughs> their scientific papers.
1: I was wondering, I was like, oh, maybe because this is in a, you said it's from Earth Science Reviews, which yeah. I haven't heard of, but sometimes in reviews, I feel like you can be... Not, A little more flowery. Yeah, you can be, but it's still science. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, so, definitely. Yeah, it's all... Yeah, but but I feel like I've maybe heard in some intros or discussions, you know, you there has to be selling points and hooking the reader still. Right. Like, you know, science writing is just like any other kind of writing. You still got to hook the reader, but it's all going to be backed up by science, right. you know? Yeah. Right.
0: And I like the fact that, especially in that website, The Conversation, you have science communication for the general public, mm-hmm. but it's being written by scientists. Hmm. I'll have to look into it, because I actually didn't know about the conversation. Oh yeah, check it out. Now, and we'll put a link into the episode notes. So why build these dams? Obviously, as we already said, it's to help engineer their habitat, but it's mostly to engineer their habitat for food supply. (laughs) That riparian, that along waterways, the vegetation that they're trying to get to, to create ponds deep enough to not completely freeze during the winter, and to protect themselves from predators. (laughs) Apparently, beavers generally prefer to build dams across river widths of 20 feet or less. And right. they also seem to prefer, not they can't always get them, but they prefer relatively wide river valleys. Hmm. And they actually researched this with um, river valleys where the valley widths are generally more than four stream widths across. Hmm. Because they want that pond to be able to spread out and right, give them more right. protection from predators. Hmm. Dams average a few feet to over 330 feet in length. They average about three feet high, although they can be larger. And the pond is usually 1.2 to 1.8, uh-oh, meters in depth. I didn't
1: change that one.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So what's that gonna be? About three to six feet or so. Well, one meter is 3.2 feet
1: feet? or something like that. I don't know. It's a little bit more than three feet. Right. So they start construction by diverting the stream. Now
0: in all my time, I had never really learned how exactly do beavers build a dam? In my head, I just kind of assume they just start piling crap up.
1: (laughs) Right, I I mean, uh, they're chainsawing the trees down with their teeth, (laughs) and then, uh, yeah, then they they fall down. And and they fall
0: down. But what they often do, and again, not always, folks, but often what they'll do is upstream from where they want to build, Mm -hmm. they will fell trees into the water. Yeah. Apparently, to slow water flow.
1: Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I, it's not like a beaver's gonna be moving a whole tree, so they, they uh, it's gotta fall in, a right, in the right spot, right. you know, to help exactly. out. <laughs> so
0: So they, they start construction by diverting the stream to lessen the water's flow pressure. Hmm. Branches and logs are then driven into the mud of the stream bed to form a base. And then sticks, bark, rocks, mud, grass, basically anything else that's available, they are used to construct the hmm. dam. The largest dam known in the world is in Wood Buffalo National Park in Alberta, Canada. Hmm. It's just over half a mile long. Holy cow, okay. And it has at least two lodges. So How many meters is that? Two beaver- (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) You can actually look on Google Earth and you can see the the pond that's created by the beaver dam. We'll put the coordinates in so you can just cut and paste those. Yeah, yeah. Um, But I think even if you just type into Google Earth or Google Maps, Hmm. world's largest beaver dam, it comes up and they predict that New dams being built could ultimately join with the main dam and increase the overall length by another 300 feet in the next <laughs> decade. So this wow. thing's gonna be massive. Now, what are the benefits of these habitats that beaver create? As we've already alluded to, they can create an incredibly diverse biological community.
1: Well, wetlands, I feel like wetlands tend to do that, right? right so right. W- with wetlands, I think you do typically have lower biomass of, you know, overall, you know, yeah. Yeah, overall Bodies. species, bi- yeah, <laughs> biomass. I couldn't I couldn't think of a better way to say that. But you do tend to, even though the biomass is lower, the species diversity tends to be higher, yeah. unless you have some type of non-native invader, because that can really heavily lower species diversity.
0: So wetlands, they occupy only 6% of the Earth's surface, but 40% of the Earth's species make use of wetlands, either for huh? food or for breeding, for shelter. Yeah. So when beaver do this, they're creating habitat for a wide range of aquatic life, providing water and food for larger animals. Hmm. And some say that ponds created by beaver filter out pollution, store water for use by farms and ranches. They slow down floods and act as fire breaks or reduce hmm. erosion. We'll talk more about some of these claims later on in the episode.
1: Uh, one thing that I've always heard, cause I, I used to do research in the ecology field. I'm not in ecology anymore, but back in the day I would read like, um, wetlands tend to help with flooding issues. Mm-hmm. So They also help with, um, it was like temperature regulation too. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah. I mean, because obviously, if you have an area with water, it takes a lot of energy, a lot of joules, to change, to the, change temp- the temperature of water one degree. And so we are going to
0: talk about that. Yeah. So wetlands in general, definitely, we can say the things that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. They do those, but there's some debate, and there's been some debate about, but do beaver-created wetlands do this? Like oh, when we talk about floods, okay. think about a beaver dam. Mm. usually when you look at a beaver dam the water is right up to the top
1: of that dam right yeah i mean that's a good point it's usually pretty high so if there's a
0: flood is that beaver dam holding (laughs) back that pond is that really going to be able to mitigate the
1: sudden surge of water that's going to happen can we get to the beaver dam do you want to travel there
0: yeah we can
2: travel yeah why not because i mean
1: we're talking about them it'd be nice to look at one even if it's you know frozen over we're not really seeing much but
0: now i will say i can't be sure it's been a while since i've been down there the trail that leads down to the dam mm-hmm. I don't know if that dam is still there or not. okay so we'll go and see though all right but as we're walking let's talk a little bit about the lodges so the lodges these are dome-like structures they're usually about six feet high and they can reach 40 feet wide Wow but typically they're about 12 feet wide okay but they're. I mean they're still big they're impressive hmm they can have one or more underwater
1: entrances and why are they going to be underwater entrances? <laughs> because whatever is on the top of the water is probably frozen in the winter anyway. Well, <laughs> right. well, well you don't want the top open regardless.
0: And predators can't get in. Right,
1: right, right. That's uh, yeah. I thing. guess I should have right? when you asked why, <laughs> I should have given a why. That's why.
0: Their living lo- level within the lodge is located above the waterline. They're often built away from shore, but not always. Uh huh. And when they are built away from shore you can think of them as islands that can only be entered underwater the chamber inside the lodge is usually about four feet wide and about two feet high and it's insulated by walls that are one foot thick and it is ventilated by a small air hole in the top usually called a chimney and typically the floor is covered in wood shavings for bedding and to absorb excess moisture. Hmm. Now, I did send you a little short paper yesterday. I did, yeah. And did you get a chance to look at that? Yeah,
1: I I read it.
0: I read it. This would be a good chance to talk about it. Sure. What is the amazing, one of the amazing things
1: about lodges? One of the amazing things about lodges (laughs) is that they typically stay above freezing. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, especially when the outside temperature is, can be well below freezing.
0: Yeah, the, the chart in that paper like it blew my mind, the huge temperature fluctuations.
1: Yeah. Like sometimes
0: dropping like 40 degrees.
1: Oh yeah. But inside the Beaver Lodge, it oh. was
0: virtually nothing. Yeah,
1: pretty solid. And I guess the explanation around that was partly is in the winter time, you have a snowpack. And when the snowpack's deep enough, we sort of talked about this on the subnivian episode. Yeah. When the snowpack's deep enough, it provides a certain level of insulation.
0: A high
2: level. Of yeah.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> when it's not high enough, it doesn't, it doesn't right. provide that because the only times that they, in the paper, where they saw the temperature inside the lodge, the air temperature inside the lodge go below freezing, is during really cold snaps where the temp, where the snow wasn't deep enough to insulate. But also they noticed during the day, the temperature would go down because that's when beavers were out and about being more busy. And at night when the beaver's bodies were actually in the dam, or sorry, I, did I say dam? You <laughs> did. Shoot, when they're in the lodge, that's when temperatures would go back up. Oh. Okay, so this leads us to muskrats.
0: Okay. We can talk right now about identifying beavers versus mus- muskrats, because when they're in the water, it can be difficult to tell the difference. Uh-huh. When I used to work here at Beaver Meadow, we'd often do full moon hikes. We'd start around dusk, and we'd always start by going down to the pond to see if we could spot the beaver. I can't tell you how many times we'd see a muskrat. Uh-huh. And people on the walk would <laughs> insist that they were beaver. Right. And I would tell them, it's not a beaver, it's a muskrat. So we already talked about how big beaver are. Mm-hmm. And typically when beaver are swimming in the water, you can only see their head. Yeah.
1: And maybe just, you know, a little bit of their neck and back. So, so it's not like they're flaunting the tail, which would be right. the biggest sign. Because Typic- a muskrat has like a rat-like tail, exactly. and a beaver has a beaver-like Cl- tail. beaver-like tail. <laughs> <laughs>
0: But a muskrat is much smaller. So we said beaver weigh 30 to 70 pounds. Mm. Muskrats weigh one to four pounds. Okay, oh such a as, difference. They're about as big as a football.
1: Yeah, but when you're a football field away from these things, right, <laughs> it can be hard to tell
0: size because uh-huh. you have no scale.
1: But a muskrat,
0: you can usually see part of the muskrat's back. Okay. And often you can see the tail kind of snaking laterally behind it oh, okay. as it's swimming. There was a uh, one walk that I was leading where some guy was insisting, like beyond reasonableness, <laughs> that is a beaver, I know a beaver when I see one, in this muskrat, almost as if I had planned it
1: crawled up onto a log, uh-huh. right in front of us. Yeah. And you could clearly see it. <laughs> <laughs> and that, it's, it's when it dawned on him, he's like, oh my God, yeah. I've never seen a beaver in my entire life. I've only ever been seeing muskrats.
0: <laughs> so also I, I had a, a volunteer here way back then, tell me that they had heard a story that often beaver lodges will become infested with fleas. Oh, okay. And so to take care of that situation, what beaver will do is they would leave, allow muskrats to move in, hmm. the fleas go onto the muskrats, and then the beavers chase the muskrats
1: out. <laughs> so. But how do the beavers get rid of their fleas? They just move on eventually? Well, no. Maybe they the, gotta be inside All the fleas the, are on the muskrats. I see, I see. So there's none, none left in the- <laughs> So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if I buy it. <laughs> it completely. was a good story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've looked into it to to try to find is there some truth there. Yeah, yeah. I couldn't even find references right, to it. Right, right. <laughs> no, no one even wants to try on that
0: one. The the crux of the the, the main weakness in the story is muskrats don't live in beaver lodges. <laughs> a beaver lodge would be way too big for a muskrat.
1: Uh-huh. Because remember, they're tiny. They're, right. They're right. only one to four pounds. And I will say one thing about the thing that I had read was that one thing that helps with these lodges, it's something called like the the ratio of the amount of bodies inside the lodge versus the amount of air that's inside the lodge. Sure. So you want to really fill the lodge up with bodies as much as you can. Like, you don't <laughs> want a lot of air right. in the lodge. And, and if if you're replacing something big with something small, you imagine that that would just be a, a worse ratio. That's a problem, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And remember, I said the, the chambers inside the lodge are typically four feet wide by two feet high, which is pretty small. Mm-hmm. When you're getting several 30 to 70 pound animals in there. (laughs) It's gonna fill up quick. Yeah. Now we already mentioned that uh, beaver are typically nocturnal. They appear at dusk and that's really the best time to see them is (laughs) at dusk or at dawn. In regions where ponds do freeze over, they stay in their lodges or under the ice using their fat reserves and then feeding off a cache of food that they gathered in the fall. And we'll (laughs) talk about that more a little later on. Usually that cache is in the lodge or underwater. Now, let's talk about their range. Okay. I'm, I'm assuming you don't know
1: this off the top of your head. So I bet I do. What
0: do you think the range of beaver is?
1: North America. It, Wait, beaver or? Castor canadensis. North, North America. North yes. America. Well, but not really Mexico. So it's going to be like the U.S. and Canada. Yeah, I mean it's pretty much all over the U.S. and Canada. And then there is one other species, right? Yep, the, Eur- the Eurasian. Yes, yeah. although
0: the North American beaver has been released in Europe in certain areas, and in South
1: America where it's become a nuisance. Okay, I just want to warn you, it seems like we're getting into a little bit of a windier area, so I'm going to try to like reposition myself. So we have emerged from the woods out
0: to where there used to be a beaver dam here, but there is no beaver dam anymore. There was a beaver dam separating two ponds. Okay, yeah. But now this is just really one big pond, and the beaver dam is probably a few hundred yards away from us. You can kind of see where the land dips down over there, holding this all in. But why don't we, and as we already mentioned, the the pond is frozen. There are beaver probably under the ice, active under the ice at different times of the day,
1: or at night. (gasps) (laughs) Whichever, whichever they decide. Why don't we go back into the trees? Whenever they get back on their cycle.
0: But getting back to their range. They're not found in the deserts of California and Nevada, and there's little parts of Utah and Arizona where we can't find them. Okay. But in terms of where they used to be, there was a a cartographer and explorer from the 17 and 1800s, his name was David Thompson. He mapped millions of square miles in North America, and he was quoted as saying, the entire northern half of the continent was in the possession of two distinct races of beings, man and beaver. (laughs) one eco hydrologist a job title i'd never heard of <laughs> recently said prior to european colonization it's possible that there were beaver in every headwater stream in north america <laughs> which kind of blew my mind yeah we can't know for sure because we're talking about original population of beaver here in north america we can't be sure really how many there were just because records were you know right tough to keep back then but it's estimated that the population before Europeans arrived, was between 60 and 400 million, which wow. is crazy. Um, today we think there's six to 12 million.
1: If there was 400 million, there'd be more of them there, there than there is of us right now. In North yeah, yeah America. right now, yeah. yeah, definitely back then. But. but
0: the fur trade removed most of them from the mid 16th century. Beaver pelts from North America they were sent to Europe, primarily for making hats. Very good. Uh, and that continued for about 300 years, until around 1830, when silk became
1: preferred. Oh. So, by the See, early... we're wearing silk hats right now, <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I love my silk hat. And silk underwear. <laughs> <laughs> You're wearing underwear? <laughs> <laughs> by,
0: by early 1900s, uh, beaver were scarce, and even in Canada. So there was one record I found in the winter of 1929, after months of scouring, the 10,000 square miles around one Canadian trading post in remote prime beaver habitat near James Bay, desperate trappers had found only four beaver pelts. Hmm. Wow. And by 1900, it's, there were perhaps only about 100,000 beaver left in North America across the whole continent. Wow. I mean, again, that's
1: kind of a pretty typical story for mammals that we like to use for something right. around, the, around the year 1900, right?
0: And again, we can't be sure. Uh, uh-huh. It's kind of funny because there were some stories I read about reintroduction efforts in Hmm. in areas around north america where when the beaver were reintroduced in like the 20s or the 30s people were saying oh there are not any beaver here but then subsequent research found well there probably were beaver here they were just pretty scarce
1: yeah so Uh, so i would say from from the very little i did read that a hundred thousand i think that sounds like a better situation at least population number size compared with the Eurasian beaver. I think that one was brought down even yes. a lot further. Yes. But then again they have a much smaller range you know. Right and remember that's a hundred thousand left across the whole continent of North America. Right and and sometimes when we're thinking about populations we're not always worried about the number of individuals we want to know about the genetic diversity correct between and among populations. So th- usually there's something that we call effective population size. So let's say as a crazy maybe not a um, realistic example but you could have an effective population size of you know 1 or something but a population size of 100,000 sure. it's just that you have all these individuals but there's no real genetic diversity among the population so that that population would probably be doomed to in failure. a lot of <laughs> a lot of trouble yeah, yeah. yeah so close to entering
0: the extinction spiral true true <laughs> <laughs> the coolest ecological yeah. name ever so the beaver they're really a rare example of an animal that was severely impacted by humans But when you look at the historical range and the current range, it it almost overlaps completely. So they really have moved to inhabit most of the areas they they were previously, Uh, just not in the numbers that they were in previously. hmm. Uh, But there's one caveat there that we can't really be sure of the exact boundaries of their historical range, again, because records were so limited and they were being removed at such a tremendous rate. Yeah. So let's talk about taxonomy. We promised to talk about this. So they are in the family Castoridae, yeah. which includes all modern beaver, beavers and their fossil relatives. Must be a lot of them. <laughs> <laughs> all you say, of them. All of them. <laughs> okay. as you said, there's only one genus, Castor. So the two species are Castor canadensis. Do you know what castor means? Uh, no. Beaver. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the Canadian beaver. Got it, got it. <laughs> and then uh, there's the Eurasian beaver, which is castor fiber. Fiber, okay. Fiber. The European beaver has a larger, square fiber, head.
1: Fiber, Latin for Europe. <laughs> I think you might be right. The fiber beaver, the the Canadian beaver, and the fiber, the fiber beaver. beaver. Yeah. And the
0: the European beaver also has a longer, narrower muzzle. They they look a little strange, you like know,
1: a... being used to North American beaver. Okay. What what what's that dog with the really long muzzle? The greyhound. Yeah yeah. yeah. It's a <laughs> the greyhound-like face. That'd be Do kind of funny. Do you think? they can mate? Um, hmm. Well, I mean, they can mate, but can they <laughs> produce viable offspring? <laughs> uh, I'll just say yes. I, I just assume that maybe they would be able to, I don't know. So for some reason in Russia, they made more than
0: 27 attempts to hybridize the two beavers. <laughs> and the best result they got was one stillborn kit. Okay. And that was it. All right, so now we're going to talk about their social structure, reproduction, development. Beaver are monogamous. Each group is made up of one breeding pair. The young are usually referred to as kits. So hmm. each group has the mom and dad, the breeding pair, the kits that were born this year, and then the kits from last year, the yearlings, which I came up with a name for them. They're called the grandkits. <laughs> the grandkids. <laughs> Even though they're the older ones. <laughs> <laughs> right. Oh, that's true. <laughs> now, <look at> that.
1: <laughs> now, did you know it's difficult to d- differentiate sexes in viewers Uh, You know, I guess I would have assumed that I can't imagine um, sexual dimorphism between the the sexes. Males do not have external genitalia. Hmm. So Hmm. I found one
0: uh, author who said, if you're an animal that spends its life swimming around log jams, (laughs) you don't want any dangling bits that can get snagged. Yeah.
1: (laughs) You know what? Something happens to humans a little bit when when we're swimming in cold water. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) To different extents to different people.
0: You can identify the females if they are lactating, but if they're not, The only reliable way to sex them, and I wish we had one here so we could have Steve do this on mic, would be to push out their anal glands. (laughs) And then you squeeze out a little dollop of the secretion they use to mark their territory. And you have to sniff it.
1: (laughs) Okay. If it's- Who discovered this? I don't know.
0: (laughs) So if it's a male, their secretion smells like motor oil. If it's a female, it smells like rancid cheese. What the heck? (laughs) Now this oil is used to waterproof the beaver's fur. So they do use it for that. They have, around their anus, they have oil glands, but then they also have castor glands, and we're gonna talk about those Hmm. in a minute. So they typically breed in midwinter. So right now, the beavers that are nearby may be getting it on right Mm. now as we speak. Nice. The two to five kits are usually born May to June. Hmm. They're about one pound. They're born with eyes open, furred. Whoa,
1: so they have like a five to six month uh, pregnancy, whatever it's called, gestational period, wow. And the kits do have fully developed teeth. They take to the water inside the lodge within a
0: half an hour after birth. They're skillful swimmers within about a week. But this
1: is so cute. They're too buoyant to dive. Oh point.
0: god! And so, folks, so
1: they're just floating around. <laughs> yeah. just well, trying I, to swim I, down. I imagine they're they're floating. Ar- well, they're, so they're born in the summer, so, so they're just flo- helplessly floating around the the top of the water, which I imagine would be dangerous. So maybe they easy to pick off. Yeah, yeah.
0: Folks, you got to stop the podcast right now. And if, if you're able to, look up some videos of baby beaver because they are the cutest thing you have ever huh. seen. They All have right. a tiny little tail. It looks like, like a toy tail. On land, mothers often carry their kits on their broad tails, mm. sometimes even walking a wreck and holding them in their paws.
1: And that's wow. another, like. I-, I have to imagine that that would be a good video. Kills to watch you with too. cuteness, yeah. watching a baby beaver being carried mm-hmm. by its mom.
0: In the water, kits may rest.
1: <laughs> that's, that's the beaver strategy. Like some humans are like, kill them with kindness, you know? <laughs> but beavers are like, kill them with cuteness as they're being picked yes. off by eagles. <laughs> the eagles would pause and yeah. say, eh, go, can't. oh, oh. <laughs> <aww."
0: laughs> kits may rest upon their mother's back in the water. And as we, I think I already mentioned, they remain with their parents for two years, helping with lodge and dam maintenance, raising the next generation of kits, Mm. until they're usually driven away just before the birth of a new litter. Mm.
1: Now talking about- Wow, their parents aren't really all that thankful. What do you mean? Because it's like, thanks for raising them, but (laughs) it's like, you got to get out. Right, they're saying. (laughs) Get a job. It's time. (laughs) Yeah. You got to go out on your own. Uh. In this economy? <laughs> <laughs> so I,
0: I feel like I have to step back a little bit because I didn't mention when we were talking about the beaver tail, mm-hmm. beaver do not carry things on their tail. They don't pat down the mud with
1: their uh, tail. Okay. You know what? I have a memory of seeing a cartoon of a beaver slapping like mud yes. and stuff. And Many maybe it was cartoons. like a, an old Hanna-Barbera or whatever it was, yeah. cartoon or whatever. I, I feel like I can picture it, but I don't know where from. Right, and that's yeah. why I have to mention that. They do carry some stuff on their tails. They like they're do. young. Like they're young, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But usually not lodge materials. Okay? <laughs> just, just imagining <laughs> like a pickup truck. <laughs>
0: once, <laughs> once here at Beaver Meadow, uh, when the, uh, the dam was in place, you used to be able to walk across the dam. Oh, yeah. And across the, right, directly across the water from where we are, there was a beaver lodge there for, <laughs> for decades. Wow. Because there were pictures in the 60s. And then when I was here in the 90s and early 2000s, the, the lodge was still there. Hmm. And sometimes in the evening, I'd walk over there. And one night I did hear kits inside the lodge creating these little whines.
1: Oh, I was going to say, what are they? What noise do beavers I'll, make? I'll put some
0: in in post production. Okay. But the kits, they make these little whines to communicate needs to parents, to communicate oh. with each other. Uh, the adults do hiss. Uh, oh, They okay. can make little whining sounds. Hissing My cat does is usually. That. <laughs> <laughs> the hissing is usually for disputes. Mmm. And then of course there's the tail slap. That's the other way that they they yeah. communicate. They also communicate outside of their sounds by depositing scents, which I already mentioned. Right, right, the uh, rotten- The The the, the, motor oil or the rancid cheese. Right, right. This is unique among rodents, building these scent mounds. I've never been able to find one. I haven't done all that much looking, but I've I've heard about them over the years. These are heaps of mud, sticks, grass, pond material. They can be up to a foot high and three feet wide, although they're usually (laughs) smaller, on which they deposit the scents from those anal glands. Now I'm running into a discrepancy here in my notes because I, I mentioned that they have two different types of those anal glands. Yeah. One's for the oil, and then one is for this material called castoreum. Right, so you said there's the oil glands and the castor glands. So I'm gonna have to put this in the episode okay. notes because in my notes here, I just noticed when I was talking about the oil glands, the ones that smell like motor oil or rancid cheese, Yeah. in my notes, it does say they use it to mark their territory. Hmm. But then later on in my notes, it says like unlike the oil that smells like motor oil or rancid cheese. The castoreum is used to mark the scent mounds. Oh. so I'm gonna to have to find out which one is
1: for which. Right, right. So this castoreum. So do they, they? They when they're trying to communicate, they're they're not only they're waterproofing a small little spot, and they're communicating. <laughs> and they're, a they're scent. communicating. <laughs>
0: well, maybe they don't want the rain to wash it away.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
0: So this castoreum. To be honest,
1: that kind of sounds sounds if logic, true,
0: yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Some of our listeners may have heard of this because. Every once in a while, um, an article will pop up on the internet saying that vanilla has uh, beaver butt juice in it Oh, uh, because the castorium does have a vanilla scent to it. Hmm. Now, there have been times in history when it was used to flavor foods, but it seems that that's a very rare <laughs> thing. And in any vanilla you're gonna find in, in grocery stores is not gonna have this in it, mm-hmm. but it has been used in perfumes before hmm. um, okay. for some reason. So. Apparently, perfumes
1: have a have a history of using weird stuff right Because right. isn't there like a some weird thing that a whale deposits or something that they use and thought there was some type of yeah well <laughs> maybe maybe in the notes i don't know <laughs> future episodes yeah have. yeah
0: all right now we're gonna get into their food and eating habits but now is a good opportunity to take a little break and talk about gum leaf oh yeah so let's talk about gum leaf usa yeah they're a frequent sponsor of the podcast Mm -hmm. and we usually try to take a moment during each episode to mention their product they make wellington style tall rubber boots yep and steve and i
1: both have pairs that we are fond of and uh, they keep your feet dry i think they're sort of fashionable especially some of the newer designs didn't they have a bunch of different colors and Mm -hmm. stuff too yeah yeah i say newer but they've been around for a little while they have (laughs) yeah
0: (laughs) and we i want to give a shout out to listener chris
1: root who's a a friend who Mm -hmm. has come with us on Christmas Bird Counts. Yep. Um, More than me at this point. I think I missed two years in a row. But this year, I literally couldn't have gone. I was uh, stuck inside my house because of a snowstorm. Stay focused. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But Chris, on the
0: Christmas Bird Count, he talked about how he recently got a pair of gum leaf boots. Nice. And how much he loves them. So if... Should have brought Chris on the episode (laughs) to talk about it. (laughs) If you would like these boots, they do cost a little bit more, but folks, they are such high quality, they last a lot longer do a much better job for you than similar looking boots that are a lot cheaper oh yeah um, we really can't talk about how much
1: we've we've loved using our boots i used to do a lot of wetland work mm-hmm. and so uh, i would just use a bunch of the boots they had sitting around the field station yeah. <laughs> i will say the gumleaf boots are a billion <laughs> Way times better. better and you could quote me on that they're a billion <laughs> times better <laughs> <laughs> so check them
0: out at gumleafusa.com and if you are a patron of the podcast you get free shipping on your order mm-hmm. all right so let's talk about what beaver eat. You already mentioned that they are what? Herbivores. Herbivores. So. Just
1: like humans. <laughs> Just kidding. Even, I argue with uh, vegans online all the time.
0: Even though, vegans like yourself?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, well, I, so I believe in something called infighting. So <laughs> whether, whether I'm talking with other vegans or other people who are, you know, similarly uh, politically leaned as, as me, I'm, I'm arguing with them all the time. So, <laughs> so
0: even though they live in aquatic habitats, um, they are not eating aquatic animals. They're eating mostly leaves, woody stems, and then they do eat a lot of aquatic plants. <laughs> Things like water lilies, during the summer months, they are not eating many woody plants. They're eating mostly green <laughs> aquatic plants. Okay. And like all rodents, beavers have self-sharpening incisor teeth that never stop growing. So the outer surface, I looked this up because I, I i told people this, I knew that their teeth were self-sharpening, but I didn't
1: understand how. So apparently, the outer surface self-sharpening. Of the teeth. Yes. See, I didn't know this. So what I've always heard is that beavers, their teeth never stop growing, mm-hmm. but they have to keep chewing on wood in order to keep the teeth from going from growing too oh, big. Oh, when you say self-sharpening, are you just saying the way that the teeth, are, when they're shaved off, that they have such an internal structure where it's gonna shave off in a way that keeps them sharp. Correct. Oh, yes. th- that makes sense. So the outer if, if I surface... designed them, that's what I would <laughs> do. Intelligent design. Yeah. <laughs> so
0: the outer surface is protected by tough enamel, but the inner surface, the part we don't see, is softer and it wears away as the beaver gnaws. So the inner surface wears away faster than the outer surface hmm. and the outer surface will kind of crumble. So that keeps a sharp chiseled edge Hmm. okay Uh, i'd heard that beavers have iron in their teeth that's why they're orange and Hmm. i looked up and apparently that is true really and that's what serves to make their the outer edge of their teeth even tougher interesting
1: okay what part of the tree do the beaver actually eat i would assume because when you look at beaver chew oh what do they actually eat yeah Oh, okay, because I was going to say, when you look at beaver chew, it always starts as girdling the tree. At least that's what it sort of looks like. Do they fully girdle it? Because when you think of insects and when you think of some birds like sapsuckers and things like that, what they want is they want the vascular tissue because that has the sugars in it. That has, obviously, there's water, there's sugars, there's some other nutrients there. So you're talking about the phloem. Yeah. Just under the bark. Right. Well, so yeah, Right. And for people that don't know, the way you can think of the phloem... So the phloem is what's coming down from the leaves and it's... Well, the
0: phloem transports the food from the leaves.
1: Right, right, right. Yeah, what's in the phloem is the sugars that are created during photosynthesis and that flows down the tree. So that's where you remember phloem from. And that's typically what um, things that feed on sap are interested in. They want the sugars, they want those nutrients there. But beavers, they they eat all the way into the tree. Right. Well, I was going to say, they don't stop with the outer layer, which is the vascular layer, those outer layers. They go in, but they also like to have trees fall. So are they eating the inside of the tree or are they just doing it because they they want that tree to go down? Well, I'm so gonna, I don't know. I'm don't gonna know. tell you.
0: This is an area again, where I saw that I could do more research into it because what you're talking
1: about, girdling the tree. Mm-hmm. So when I talk about girdling, that's a way that people kill trees right. as well. So you remove it, a ring of bark. Yeah, and And that just cuts off the water flow from the roots and that'll kill the tree. So beavers, when they're girdling a tree, a lot of times, depending on the
0: the size of the tree, they won't take the tree all the way down. Hmm. They'll girdle it and, and cut into it to a certain point and they yeah. kind of let gravity do its work. Okay. So there's a whole bunch hmm. of papers I came across that looked into the placement of beaver cuts on trees Yeah. because people say, oh, beavers always know how to cut a tree so it falls towards the water.
1: So I, I don't cut trees down. Like my, my family and I have done it a lot in the past, done in our property, but I don't remember how we used to chainsaw the trees to, to make them the come down. Just used to do the dumbass way and just make a
0: cut, and whatever way it falls, it yeah, falls.
1: Yeah, well, to be honest, sometimes we would tie a rope to the tree onto an ATV and try to, like, make sure it's pulled. It it's, like, there's, like, a, a tight rope pulling in one direction to make sure it there's goes the way. There's lots of great YouTube but videos I was going to say, that. but but I think that, that that's an easy way to maybe die. It's the best <laughs> no. laid plan yeah, right? Right, right.
0: <laughs> All right, so I'm not going to get into that too much, though, because... The, I want to be able to do that justice. So maybe we'll do that in part two. Mm-hmm. But I do want to talk about what they're actually I just actually want to say
1: one eating. thing. Yeah. This this ATV trick, <laughs> I feel like we've used it so few times that I, I don't even know how to count it. It would be less than on one hand. Okay, But for the most part, because my family does cut a lot of wood and because a lot of us have wood stoves and stuff, we do do it the proper way. It's just that I don't do it enough. To where I'm usually the one like splitting it at the log splitter. I'm not the one bringing the tree down. No so. one trusts you with. The yeah, yeah, yeah. Down. I just want to <laughs> let you guys know my family's not a complete group of idiots, <laughs> but uh, or a group of complete idiots anyway. Um, Either but, way, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But a complete group. Of yeah, yeah. I don't want to lose all my uh, you know credibility <laughs> because because uh, I said we use an ATV to pull trees in a certain direction. So getting back to beavers and taking down One trees. One more thing about... <laughs> <laughs>
0: you got to remember that when they're taking down a tree, there's two purposes they're going to use that wood for. One mm-hmm. is for the dam and the lodge. Yeah. And then the other is to feed on.
1: Yeah. So we well, should... Well, that's s- why I was, couldn't figure it out. Because right. I'm like, why are they eating into the middle of the tree? That's, that's usually... People, You, I mean, people. <laughs> Animals typically, I feel like, aren't interested in the middle of a tree. If they're eating to the middle, they're taking down that tree.
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. If they're feeding, they're going to strip off the outer bark. Mm-hmm. To get to the inner bark, okay. To get to the phloem, um, so it is the phloem that they want. It is the phloem that they want, okay. and that cambium layer, that sheath of uh-huh. living tissue. Right. The
1: yeah. Right. Because the only thing living on the tree are those outer layers. Right. Yeah.
0: And for uh, a further description, folks, of, of the structure of a tree, listen to our sap episodes. Yeah. Because yeah, we yeah. really get into it then. Uh-huh. So they're stripping away the outside bark, and they're eating the inner bark and that cambium layer. That's what they're going for. The actual wood. The xylem of the tree, the mm-hmm. hard stuff, it's very hard to digest and will not be eaten. The chief building materials that they're going to use for their lodge and their dam are also their preferred foods: poplar, aspen, willow, birch. Okay.
1: What's similar about all of those trees? Are you thinking what I'm thinking? Poplar, willow, aspen, aspen birch. Bill's trying to give me hints. Yeah. I'll just let him say it. They grow fast.
0: Right? Oh, grow fast. So they're going to okay. be a softer hardwood.
1: Okay. Right. Okay. But maple is
0: also one of their their favorite foods as well. I did try to look up like which is their favorite food because yeah. some articles I read said, oh, hands down, willow's their favorite food. Other <laughs> articles said aspen is their favorite food. But,
1: but I was gonna say, so I know willows and birches, they don't mind getting their feet wet a little bit. Depends on the birch. Depends yeah. on the birch. Yeah. Um, maples, maybe red, red maples are more likely to get their feet wet. Yeah. Cottonwoods. Cottonwoods are wh- poplars. Yeah, right. that's right. all all the same genus. Yeah. yeah, They're definitely getting their feet wet because I'm just thinking. To uh, we have a place near us called Tift Nature Preserve, and it's all that's there are cottonwoods. Right. <laughs> and they're in a pretty wet spot. So.
0: And I just realized I said poplar and aspen. Well, aspen's a kind of poplar. <laughs> <top>. <laughs> right, right.
1: <You laughs> Populus tremuloides or deltoides. They're you don't all. Don't need yeah. to send in an email. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um,
0: we did get an email from somebody asking about uh, responding to our black walnut episode, asking why don't beavers like black walnuts. He said that they <laughs> seem to avoid black walnuts. I tried to find anything on this. Yeah. Um, so, Don, I'm sorry, I couldn't find a reason <laughs> for it. The only thing I could think is that maybe black walnuts don't typically grow too close to water, <laughs> um, they're outcompeted by other things. Yeah, maybe. Uh, because remember, folks, beaver are building that dam, creating the pond for protection. Yeah. On land, beaver cannot move <laughs> very quickly, so they're not going to stray too far from the water. Yeah now we already mentioned during winter there is no hibernation and they're predominantly feeding on woody plants that they've cached remember they spend their winter inside the lodge and under the ice i always taught people that beaver in the fall they'll take branches with leaves and stick them in the mud on the bottom of the pond Hmm. and that that acts the cold water acts as a refrigerator oh sounds good right yeah i guess it does sound good so i looked into it Mm mm-hmm and I did find some references to the fact that the cold water does preserve the nutritional value of some species. Okay. Not all species. Some mm. species, the water, the, the moisture is going to break them down. But some species, yes, it does preserve the nutritional value for a longer period of time. And they do, I had to put in, they do hold their food with their front paws, eating the, the branches corn on the cob style. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> so let's get into what beaver can do and their benefits. There's clear evidence that beaver dams increase water storage in river landscapes, and they create more ponds and wetlands, raising groundwater levels. I was gonna say, increase water storage. It, <laughs> I feel like, of course, right? Like... <laughs> That's obvious. <laughs> yeah. So all this extra water that the dams store, they could help rivers and their inhabitants handle weather extremes, especially with climate change. During floods and droughts, they could act as critical refuges for fish amphibians insects birds hmm. and then thinking of human benefits we already mentioned this a little bit some think beaver complexes could reduce floods and their impacts hmm. this is a relatively new concept so there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that beaver dams actually make floods worse because during floods hmm. the dams will fail and then you get the flood water and all oh. the pond water coming down So, there have been some... I didn't didn't consider that. There have been some recent studies. In 2020, there was a paper that came out, and it recorded during a June 2013 rainstorm that triggered the largest recorded flood in the Rocky Mountains in Alberta. Hmm. Researchers, they'd been monitoring a beaver peatland for more than a decade, and they wanted to answer the question, do beaver have a limited capacity to reduce flood impacts? They set up instruments to record uh, water levels, weather information during this big rainstorm that they knew was coming. And they wanted to find out, do beaver dams commonly fail during large flood events? Hmm. So they monitored several ponds, a bunch of dams, and they found that the majority, 70% of the beaver dam systems across the region were intact or partially intact Hmm. after the event. So this occurred despite reports that these dams tend to fail. Water storage offered by the beaver ponds, even ones that failed, delayed arrival of those floodwaters downstream. Huh.
1: I now, was gonna say, when, when you say something typically fails, I, I would kind of think like 30%. If someone said that, and I found out that 30% of the time they were right, yeah. I would kind of give them like, like, you know what, <laughs> that wasn't a bad assessment. Oh, okay, you know, I see yeah. what you're saying. Now- 30% is kind of a big percent of the time. It is, it yeah. is, but so, 70%. Is 77% big is even bigger. Much but,
0: bigger. <laughs> yeah. So this, this tendency to delay the arrival of floodwater downstream. Remember, we talked about how the the beaver dam, the water was usually up right up to the top. Yeah. Okay. So we thought, well, yeah, if there's floodwater's coming, it's just going to overtop it. Mm-hmm. But they found that usually that delay, it wasn't because the ponds held the water. It's because the water was able to spread out into oh. the floodplain beyond the pond. Okay. Typically. Yeah. So remember we talked sense. about yeah. beavers prefer areas with that are river valleys that are wide. Yeah i'm not saying it's because they know during a flood <laughs> <laughs> that uh-huh. the waters are going to spread out it's a happy accident yeah that's right so their findings said that while beaver dams are unlikely to provide a hundred percent flood protection they can store water for a time even in large rainfall events and that this nature-based solution should be included in regional water management strategies hmm. and let's talk about pollution now beaver dams obviously they increase the time it takes for things to move downstream could this help slow the spread of pollutants like nitrates and phosphates hmm. commonly used in fertilizers, which can harm fish and damage water quality? Now, if you just do a quick search online, you'll see a lot of sites claiming that beavers are great for limiting water pollution. Hmm. But beavers' impact on phosphates is unclear. Hmm. There are just as many studies finding phosphorus concentrated concentrations increasing downstream of beaver dams as those finding a decrease or no change. Hmm. But they do seem to have an effect on nitrates. One 2015 study showed how beavers seem especially skilled at removing this one. Organic matter builds up in the beaver ponds and bacteria in that matter in the soil transform the nitrate into nitrogen gas. So this is denitrification, Mm -hmm. removing it from the ecosystem. This process this study found can remove 5 to 45% of the nitrates in the water what? depending on the po- the pond and the amount of nitrogen present. So this is a welcome skill since high concentrations of nitrates in drinking water is especially bad for infants, for the very young, but also that's nitrates are some of the components that help to Generate algal blooms, which lead <laughs> to dead zones. So the evidence seems to definitely indicate they are beneficial at removing nitrates. We're still not sure their impacts on phosphates. Well, and maybe could be maybe we need
1: maybe we need more uh, beavers in Lake Erie then, because don't we get some pretty awful algal blooms, especially on like the western end of Lake Erie, that create big dead zones? Yeah, but are you gonna get a beaver in a Great lakes. So I'm saying we just <laughs> gotta keep helicopter, uh, you know, <laughs> dropping drop them. <laughs> <laughs> we have to we have to start breeding them to really like lakes.
0: <laughs> now we keep we've mentioned several times about how beaver increase diversity, right? Mm-hmm. All that water storage that beavers are doing creates a wonderful mosaic of still, slow, and fast-moving watery habitats. So, in particular, it does seem they increase the biodiversity of river valleys. For example, helping macroinvertebrates like worms and snails, big part of healthy food chains. Mm-hmm. And a beaver's departure can leave anything from fens or peatlands to wet floodplain forests and also to drier grassland meadows, depending you know, on the, the habitat that was there when the beaver moved in. This gives beavers an important role in rewilding efforts. But nuance is key here. Evidence of beaver dam impacts on fish populations and river valley vegetation is very mixed. Mm. They're agents of disturbance.
1: I could imagine if there's a, a fish that requires traveling ah to making their complete journey, yeah. like salmon and things like that. I could so imagine that that would be a problem. Let's talk
0: about that yeah. because I started to look into it, and that's a topic that I feel deserves its own section right. and episode. But just to say briefly, for many years, people believed that <laughs> beaver were bad for salmon and seagoing trout species because yeah. they prevented them
1: from migrating their dams yeah, but, prevented them but so did uh so did glaciers and the salmon just keep coming back the glaciers are the beavers <laughs> of uh of oh. the north <laughs> the beavers are in the north <laughs> oh yeah yeah right they are they're uh, the, the glaciers ice are yeah pre-beaver yeah. ice ice beavers are glaciers and uh, the salmon. are you know they come back they bounce back <laughs> so Maybe they could bounce But we're talking about human timescales here. (laughs) (laughs) So
0: there's more recent evidence suggesting that when beavers do create ponds, they create slow moving areas, that that can benefit salmon. We're gonna get into that in (laughs) another episode some point in the future. But with what I mentioned a few moments ago about beavers being agents of disturbance, that can promote plants that germinate quickly, like invasive species. Woody shrubs and grasses, that can reduce forest cover and help some invasives. Hmm. Given time, it can also help create valleys with a far richer mosaic of plant life. So although beaver presence is likely to bring benefits, more research is needed to get clear info on precisely how beavers change ecosystems. And those changes, they're likely to be different between different ecosystems and habitats. Hmm. So avoid those blanket statements. Sure. Let's talk about their role in carbon, because they play a complex role in carbon, dealing with climate change, a 2018 study suggests that beaver dams and the sediments corralled behind them sequester carbon, temporarily keeping it out of the atmosphere. But when the animals abandon those sites, the carbon leaks back out, which hmm. contributes to global warming. Overall, more carbon seems to be trapped than released by beaver activities, hmm. because remember, what beaver when they abandon one area, most likely they're just going to go build in another area. Right. But a clearer understanding of where beavers fit continent-wide especially within the carbon cycle of river systems is needed if we're to make best use of their carbon capture skills and that actually leads to
1: the last study that I want to share yeah and and maybe as we're going through this study do you want to
0: oh yeah let's watch again yeah so this study I heard about it on a podcast reading about it I thought oh we should do an episode on beaver so that kind of kicked this <laughs> off this is a 2022 study about expanding beaver pond distribution in the Arctic. So researchers, they looked at aerial photographs, satellite photography of the northwest portion of Alaska from 1949 to 2019. Beaver were never thought to live in the Arctic, Hmm. but using those 70 years of images, researchers found the construction of over 10,000 beaver ponds in western Alaska, most of the
1: growth since 2003. You know, I mean, Alaska's a pretty wooded place, right?
0: No, no, this is in the tundra.
1: Oh, tundra. <laughs> this is in the Wait, tundra. Wait, so what are they making
0: the... <laughs> well, let me get to that. Okay. <laughs> so the Arctic, it's heated up three times faster than the global average. Winters are shorter, there's more unfrozen water in streams, and there's more shrubby vegetation growing now. Oh, okay. So that has allowed beavers to find habitat in this area where they couldn't before. Wow. It's hard to tell how much of them is might just be reclaiming some former range uh-huh. and how much is climate change encouraging them into new areas. Okay. Because again, there's not reliable records about whether beaver were in these areas, but it seems highly unlikely because there were no trees. Uh-huh. So you look at some of these pictures and what used to be a squiggly line of a creek now looks like a chain of beads with all these beaver ponds behind dams. Wow. And when you put a pond on a stream or on pre-existing tundra vegetation, it absorbs heat more readily. This goes into what you were talking about. Mm -hmm. Warmer water is gonna thaw permafrost, releasing carbon that's been trapped for millennia. Now this is engineering. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So much of this landscape might go from tundra to something more like boreal forest. Wow. And at the end of the winter, When you still have liquid water at the bottom of these ponds, it's almost like having a groundwater spring. You're gonna have species in that stream that can suddenly survive year round. Wow. Where they never could before. There's no other animal that has changed the Arctic so much, so fast, except for humans. Wow. All right, and. <laughs> what <We're>, a hill. <laughs> <laughs> we're walking up a hill here, folks. But. I'm glad I shared that story. Yeah. I was kind of debating because I know this episode's a little long because I almost forgot. Talk about beaver attacks. Oh, (laughs) yeah. We we promised. Got to deliver. Beaver attacks are relatively rare. But when they do happen, it's usually because one of two things. More frequently, it seems to be because of a beaver that has been infected by rabies. Oh, well. But there have been some attacks that it's thought they were territorial. They're rarely fatal. And again, folks... You could probably count on one or two hands the number of beaver attacks that have been recorded in North America or Europe. But at least one beaver attack on a human is known to have been fatal. A 60-year-old fisherman in Belarus died in 2013. (laughs) Whoa. After a beaver bit open an artery in his leg. (sighs) No way. (laughs) Now, apparently the Belarusian media at the time they described it as the latest in a series of beaver attacks on humans in the country. Because <laughs> apparently there is a beaver population there that's increasing. Uh-huh. But however, <laughs> there were some reports that the victim likely provoked the attack when he grabbed the beaver in an effort to take a photo with it. Oh no. <laughs> so,
1: there's some good advice there. Don't try to get us I was gonna say, to d- the beaver. <laughs> Did you read about that one in the Darwin Awards or just the newspaper? That was Wikipedia. <laughs> Wikipedia, yeah, yeah. So who knows how true that is. Right.
0: So I would say, going back to the original story that we started with, I don't think that beaver probably would have attacked. Uh-huh. The chances are slim, but I am glad we got off <laughs> the dam and uh, got into our kayaks uh-huh. before I could find out. <laughs> All right, so I think we're definitely going to do a part two at some point in the future it may not come next mm-hmm. but for a wrap up I want to give a few shout outs one it's a bit of a sad one I just oh. wanted to share with our listeners that friend of the podcast Jerry Rising mm-hmm. passed away uh, he was on our Witch Hazel episode Witch right? Hazel episode he did a write up about us in a local magazine here in Buffalo yeah. he was always very kind to the he podcast he's a great guy Yeah, a great nature writer and uh, we'll put a link to his collected nature writings I'd encourage the audience to go check him out yeah. I also wanted to share an email and give a thank you to Danielle. Her email started with chocolate dinosaur. <laughs> um, she wrote after listening to the bird banding episode saying she found a kestrel band and reported it. Cool. So thanks for doing that, Danielle. And then Crystal Van Lair and her son, they have been fans of the podcast and we helped fire up her interest in plants huh. and she recently went back to school. Nice. Yeah. So that was a good one to get.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. All right.
0: And I'm going to have you talk about the patrons.
1: Yeah. So we'd like to thank our growing list of Patreon supporters. So thank you to our new patrons, Connor D. Higgins, Don Scalen, and Emily Krill-L. Yeah. So Connor, you know him. Oh, Connor. Yeah. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know Connor's last name for some reason. <laughs> so we say hi to Connor. He's yeah. a friend
0: of ours. And then Don, he's the one that wrote about squirrels and black walnuts. He left uh, a nice lengthy comment on our black walnut. Hmm. episode. Yeah. And uh, he lives just uh, outside Toronto. Cool. So he had a lot to share. So thank you, Don. Who
1: who pointed out that I say both wrong? <laughs> <laughs> That's coming up. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> we like to give a special shout out each month to our top patrons. So stick around for the end of the episode to hear Bill's daughter, Violet, share that list. And remember, if you'd like to be part of the field guides and read our patron list in a future episode, email us at thefieldguides@gmail.com. at gmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, consider becoming a patron of our show at patreon.com. As a patron, you'll get access to a special patron-only version of our episodes. That includes Bill sharing the episode notes. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> it's <laughs> so this true. this is a new thing? <laughs> it is. <laughs> nice. <laughs> and because of the support of our listeners, we've been able to keep the show free and make cooler episodes like Insectapalooza. Or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal on our website. So a big thank you to Don Scalin for his generous donation in September. Uh, And don't forget that we have Field Guides merch available through our website store at thefieldguidespodcast.com. And remember, if you can't financially support the podcast, you can help out by sharing it with friends and family and by subscribing and leaving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps spread the word and allows us to reach a wider audience. So we'd like to thank our newest iTunes reviewers, Holo grandpa. <laughs> Apparently, this is who pointed out that I can't say both right. I say both. Like with an LTH. Is that a is that a regional thing or do I just do that? I have It's no just idea. a fleck thing. I guess it's just a fleck thing, yeah. <laughs> also, thank you to Via Shano 16. Or Via Shano 16? Yeah. G Wet 17 or Gwet 17. <laughs> I'm gonna do this with all these. <laughs> um, Extra Elvis. I'm not gonna do it with that one. MGM Rena. And Bunny Girl 33.
0: Yeah, so I I made a little notation there because Bunny Girl 33, she came on an event I did. Mm. Here at Beaver Meadow, the day after Thanksgiving, there was a special event called Opt Outside. Okay. So the idea was instead of, you know, going shopping, you could do something outside. So Hmm. Outside Chronicles put that together. Folks, Outside Chronicles is a friend of the podcast. Our our friend Mike Radomski runs it. Uh, Check them out at OutsideChronicles.com. He runs a hiking challenge here in Western New York, uh, helps raise money for local conservation efforts. In the past few years, he's raised over $200,000 for places like Buffalo Audubon here and and the Western New York Land Conservancy that we've worked with. Cool. So check him out. His model for raising money for conservation funds and getting people outside is an incredible model that really anyone can implement (laughs) in their area. So check out OutsideChronicles.com. But he had me come out And they had a series of hikes on that day, and I led one of the hikes. And the people that came with me, I started off by asking, oh, who's heard of the Field Guides podcast? And not a single person (laughs) (laughs) had heard of us. Wow. (laughs) But I encouraged them. I gave out, I think I gave out some cards. or maybe I just told them where to find us, and uh, she said that she found us because of that event.
1: Nice. Yeah, so thanks
0: for tracking us down.
1: Well, I mean, you can track us down in person, I guess, uh, (laughs) from time to time. Or you can come enjoy our sporadic posts on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always email us ideas for episodes, criticisms, or stories of uh, personal encounters you've had with uh, with beavers <laughs> at thefieldguides at gmail.com.
0: And parents, remember to get those kids outside. Let them get muddy and dirty and flip over rocks and logs. And thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.
1: Yep. See you next time.
0: And here is Violet to read this episode's patrons. But before she does, I just needed to say thank you to two of our new patrons. I didn't notice during recording that Steve combined their two names. So thank you individually to our new patrons, Kirill L. and to Emily. Thank you so much. And here's Violet with this episode's top patrons.
3: Alyssa, Eric, Adam, The Hebranks, Mary, Daniel M., Diane, Elizabeth, Jessica, Callie, Ken, Morgan, Orange Julianne, Rich K, Sean C, Susan, we named the dog Indy, JJ, Dwayne, Jonathan A, Andrew C, Andy T, Ben C, Bethany, Brandon, Bruce, Connor, DoodleDude82, Emily, Esther. Give it a try. Gregaria Papaloni idea.
0: (laughs) That's pretty good. Let's go with it. Go ahead.
3: (laughs) Gail and Mac, Gavin, Helen, J. Jean, Jack, Jeff, Jane, John W., Judy, Kazes, Kelly, Quixote, Lauren, M.D., Mark V., Matt, Max, Measure and Principal, Melissa Marie in Dusty, Arizona, Molly, Nathan, Nonical 3, Outside Chronicles, Rob M., Robert P., Sarah, Hannah.
0: That's everybody. Well done. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you to our top patrons. Steve and I appreciate it each and every one of you thank you for helping to make the field guides podcast possible
3: bye The field guides
0: i'm
1: bill and i'm here with steve good morning steve good morning bill what are you uh <laughs> wait yeah what did, this is kind of why i was like i don't i am like i told you about last night and this morning <laughs> i'm like yeah i'm a little dead right now yeah, um i'm, I'm totally drawing a to blank yeah uh, good morning. I'm going to have to listen to one. Yeah, what the
0: heck? Good morning. <laughs> it's just gone. It's been so long. Because
1: it doesn't sound right to be like-